Hey, welcome back to Panel Scanners, episode 191, continuing our conversation about our top 10 credit sequences for movies, TV, games. I don't know if there's going to be any of those on there. I don't have any. Someone's going to, maybe. Phil probably would. Too bad, Phil. Sucks to be you. He'll be back next month, maybe. Um, we'll see. We miss you. So volunteering uh, for your proctologist. Matt, he'll be back too someday. Well, someday we'll all be back together, but let's move on. Um, so my number five for the credit sequences is the most recent one I have in terms of when it was produced, and that is Stranger Things. Little more than a text reveal, but somehow though it's simple animation and atmospheric electronica is able to convey the tone of that show. And everything about that show was so well crafted that um, when I saw the poster for that show, before ever knowing what it was about, very Drew Struzan inspired, right? I immediately looked at that when I'm watching this show. I don't even know what it's about, but I'm watching it. It just felt like something that came out of my past. And, I, and initially, I kind of thought it was a movie. I was trying to figure out what movie that was from the 80s that was on Netflix all of a sudden. And, of course, it wasn't. And then we, and I, I sat down with my wife, and we, we started watching it. And then that credit sequence hits you, and you're like, oh, this is really cool stuff. Um, of course, the show is sort of transcendent now. It's become one of the more popular <clears throat> streaming shows. If it's not the most popular streaming show of all time, it's up there. And I think that every time you sit down to watch that, it's only a few – it's only maybe 10 to 15 seconds of a credit sequence, but it's memorable. It's – something that sticks with you i hum that song that music it's so well crafted and it's it, it's a testament to a very simple credit sequence that doesn't need to do a whole lot but it tells you everything you need to know mark for number five i'm gonna say okay three two one let's jam cowboy bebop is one of the more memorable intros i can think of uh this one's for phil considering he's not here <laughs> and uh uh from series uh, music producer Yoko Kano and her band Seatbelts, um, a member of which is the uh, guitarist Sunio Imahori, who did the Trigun theme. Uh, it's a very 70s bluesish vibe, and it really fits the style of the show, which is just kind of like uh, everything's kind of based around the music. Everything in Cowboy Bebop sort of happens with the music. The music drives all the action. It's, it's just a character of its own. So uh, that theme, that's my number five. Nice. Well, see, for my 10 through 6, they were the kind of shows that, like, if you're in the bathroom and you hear them start, you knew you got, like, a couple minutes to get there before the show starts. <laughs> these, are the, these are the ones where you didn't want to miss the intro. My number five, and there's a two-way tie, and I don't think anyone will blame me on this, Thundercats and Silverhawks. Basically the same thing. Yeah. The shows are very similar. And I would love to see a side-by-side -side comparison of those two intros. Both songs are, are just bangers. And, I mean, they're quick. They're stunning. I, I couldn't decide. Silverhawks and Thundercats are my number five. Oh, childhood. They gave us the greatest things we'll ever have. Everything sucks now. Um, my number four is... The NBA on NBC. I knew that was going to be in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I knew you knew too. During the glory days of the NBA in the 1980s and early 1990s, NBC obtained the broadcast rights for regular season and playoff games. 
then enlisted hard rock musician John Tesh to craft Round Ball <laughs> Rock. Um, it's the the hardest of all John Tesh songs, and it's so memorable and so so to this day, like people still like yell at ESPN and ABC. Would you please just buy that song from NBC? I mean, even you, Gary, remember like getting pumped up, and you weren't the biggest basketball fan, but you remember watching like from our play, our rehearsal on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, the playoff gaming is for the Cavaliers. And then from the back of the room, you'd hear like so people are out there rehearsing and you could hear <laughs> from the back room and our director would get mad, but then he just ended up coming watching the game with us. Yeah. Um, it's such a great song. It's the greatest sports song to any intro of all time. Um, I just wish they would take it and use it. I like the intro, the inside the NBA intro, but it's it's just you hear that like the first three songs and you could just see like basketball in your head. Um, and I loved what Conan O'Brien did with it when they lost the rights to the NBA. Conan O'Brien was using it for like he was splicing it into old movies, like in um, uh, why well, I have a why can't I think of it? Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. When they he dives into the pool to save, like he goes, "Oh no, I'll save you!" And it's like, da, 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 and he splices it into like "Gone with the Wind" and "Casablanca." It's just so funny and so memorable, and uh, I, I miss it to this day. And it's been almost twenty years. Mark. All right. Well, my number four is going to go with Game of Thrones. Uh, it's the intro sequence that kind of revolutionized the modern credit sequence mm -hmm. Gary did you just put a finger up I did that's on my list alright so we'll talk about that later a little well, bit I didn't even watch the show and I love that song so I get why it's there Gary my number four um, and this may have as much to do with the show as it did the song but uh, the Transformers cartoon uh, it, it's got a soft spot uh, I wasn't going to put it up closer but uh yeah, that's a banger. That's one of those things. That thing starts. I don't want to miss a second of that intro. Um, see it when I close my eyes sometimes. <laughs> well, there. I mean, it's the one that's closest to your heart. And then, I mean, hey, that's that's what sometimes like the song is not great. The intro is a little lackluster. But what it means to you is so much more than <clears throat> it's so much more. What's the old saying? It's so much more than the sum of its what parts. Its parts. It, it, it just elevates it. Am I number three? Gonna brace myself here in case someone has it higher. Star Wars. Nope, I went with all TV. Okay. Uh, well, of course, this would be from what's now known as the Skywalker Saga. Although I did hear at Star Wars Celebration that the movies going forward are bringing back the opening crawl because for the um, those movies that kind of stood along, that maybe adjacent to or outside of the main continuity, which would be uh, Solo and there were only two, right? Rogue One. Rogue One. That was the, Those were the only two. Yeah, that, that was it. Um, they did not utilize the opening crawl. And I, I mean, people were a little bit taken aback. Like, uh, well, how do we know what happened before this? <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it's so famous because, you know, there's the people that there's still a debate today that says the original Star Wars movie in 1977 began by saying episode four. Some people say they saw it right away in the opening weekend. Other people say they did not. Um, it was added later as episode four, which I still remember, like, learning that it said episode four and being really confused about what was going on here. I'm like, 
okay, so can we go back and watch the three that came before it? Well, there are no other three. Well, then how is this episode four? Um, and then, of course, later we would learn that you should have just left well enough alone. Um, but, uh, yeah, the opening crawl is so memorable and so copied and so just redone and parodied. And it's become its own genre. And I, it's so effective. I mean, even though I really didn't like the sequel trilogy, with the, what's the, the Rise of Skywalker when that opening crawl starts up and it says the dead speak, I'm like, I'm in. I, and you like, I was, that was cool. And then for uh force awakens, the first thing you see Luke Skywalker has disappeared and you're like, Oh, okay. I'm in. It just, it just, it gave you that little bit of information that you needed um, to going forward. And I think the worst of them to me is the episode one. When you, when you look back on it, because it's all about trade franchises and federation. We should have <laughs> right away. Like what? Wait, wait. There's a there's a Senate meeting, and they don't you you guys know you have laser swords you could be using here, right? I mean, what about that? And the last thing they have dispatched two Jedi, which to me sounds like they already killed two Jedi. We haven't even made it out of the opening crawl. Um, so it, it's uh, it's so great, and I love. I used to have them the, the original three memorized, not because I tried to, because I watched those movies <laughs> so, so much. Um, but. They are in of themselves. They can be misleading because one of the problems I had about the sequel trilogy was the very first thing they tell you is Luke Skywalker disappeared. They're telling you this is all about Luke, except that it's not. And by the way, you're going to hate him. We're going to ruin that for you. So just buckle up. It's going to be a real rough ride. Um, all right. There's my number three. Mark, what do you got? Da, 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 da. Oh man, which I've, one? I've actually got a two-way tie here for number three with Batman the Animated Series with the Danny Elfman theme. And then what I will move on to my second one, part of the tie, which is uh, there's a show that came out and I was not interested at all. And then I had nothing to do on the day it premiered and I ended up watching it. And in the intro... We see sweeping over the ocean and then Gotham coming out of the mist and then Neo-Gotham behind it oh, as yeah. the awesome industrial metal music of Batman Beyond kicks in. Mm. And I suddenly stopped and said, whoa, maybe I do want to watch this. That intro sold me on the show before I ever saw a bit of it. And, that was uh, good. Yeah, done by the same company, Shirley Walker, composer. And uh, I understand originally they were going to go with a different crew because they didn't think her people could handle that kind of music. And so they put together a demo reel that just blew the exec socks off. Yeah, that I remember like that was a that was arresting. It was kind of like we just leveled up a little bit with our Sunday morning cartoons when that thing hit. Oh, yeah. I've actually been watching uh, Batman Beyond again the past couple of weeks on HBO, and I've been loving it. All right, Gary. My number three. Uh, wish Phil was here. From 1987 to 1996, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. Mm -hmm. That thing ran for nine years? Yep. Seriously? Wow. Yeah, I kept adding more characters. That's, that's why I tried to figure out myself. But, yeah, I mean, it's a little, a little repetitive, but it is catchy, and it, uh, you know, it fell in the memorable, ca memorable category. Excuse me. I like memorable. Mem memorable. Me memorable. <laughs> Mem memorable. Memorable. 
Can we agree to just use that? Because I'm so sick of iconic because everything is iconic, which means nothing is iconic. It's memorable. Remember, <laughs> they're, all, they're all unique, like everything Very else. Cool. I agree. Yes. So my number three, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon theme. Fast-packed, fast-action, action-packed. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> well, I, what was hard-packed? Wow. I need to sleep more. I'm sorry. Yeah, but when you... Aaron, you're number two. But when we have an opportunity to talk about credit sequences, because that's a thing people do, and record this and then put it out for the world to hear, because it's really important for you to know, trust me, that my number two is Star Trek, the original series. All right? And, of course, then, The Next Generation. Yeah, the theremin. (laughs) Which was, uh, you, did, did, you could debate whether or not it was used better by Doctor Who or Star Trek. Um, oh. You know, the Doctor Who one used to creep me out a little bit when I was a kid, which is probably why I never watched that show until I was an adult. But anyway, Star Trek, the original series. I This may be the most recognizable for television shows. Um, I think it almost, I have, I have no way to base this on unless I was going to go back and look at like a thousand television entries. But it could be one of the original ones that sort of, gives you this vocal narrative and with the the music coming behind it kind of telling you what's going on i'm sure it's not but it's it's, it's still we're talking about 1966 here so it's you know it's up there and it, it's it's original and it's genre defining um i think it's everyone recognizes it so it was originally used for the original series and every episode of the original series um that wasn't the original pilot and then it was resurrected for the next generation, changing very little other than space to Final Frontier. You know, uh, it changed, it, it made it a little more gender neutral. It was then used again for 2009's J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek, and then wasn't used again until Star Trek Strange New Worlds as the first television series since the next generation to use it. Now, I hope you guys don't mind, but I did do the Buck Rogers and the A Team and the um, Knight Rider, and I, I, I feel compelled. To do this one too i have this memorized it's i, mean, I think everyone's going to know it uh so are you ready and this is just if you'll indulge me for a moment outer space the last frontier these are the trips of the star trek enterprise its five-year plan calls for us to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life and civilizations to boldly fly where no man has gone in space live long and be happy if you aren't familiar that is uh Patrick Stewart's monologue when he hosted Saturday Night Live when he claimed to be a really big Star Trek fan and he was delivering all these facts gotcha. about Star Trek. It was a great monologue. I found it. I'm like, oh, I have to do this for the podcast. Um, <laughs> I was like, like that's not right. The facts he delivered <laughs> were... it's, it's funny because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, that's not it. But I'm like, I know that. That sounds familiar. <laughs> you know, here's some of the facts that he delivered in his monologue. He said, here's a fact I bet you didn't know. The original show the name of the spaceship was not the Star Trek. No, in fact, it was called the Enterprise. That's true. And everyone knows that the part of Captain James T. Kirk, played by William Shiner, would then go on to, to be very famous as the $6 million man. Very true. <laughs> and he, he kept going out with these stupid facts. And then he would talk about, you're, you're, I see you're forgetting that, of course, Dr. Spock was half human and he was born in a volcano very very funny stuff um and my favorite star trek character. did you know that another star trek character captain sula was the first black woman ever on television um just just a fantastic 
Nick opening. And I got to go find this one because uh, it's he does a um, they do a skit for Next Generation. And Chris Farley plays Riker, and he's got Riker's physical mannerisms down so perfectly. Um, but anyway, I think this is as even Star Trek people who are casual Star Trek fans can pretty much go space to Final Frontier. So that's my number two. Wow, I mean, I got you in a three way tie for your potential number one, then. Oh, this is not good because I only have one. I so know there are two out there that I'm probably going to be really upset about. But let's Ooh. move on. Mark, what do you got? <laughs> well, we're on number two, right? So uh, this one, I have to give it to The Simpsons. Oh. Yeah, that hurts. Yeah. That's what I heard. I, I have to have that one on there. Again, Danny Elfman. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest of all time for keeping you watching it because something changes every time, whether it's Bart at the Blackboard or the Couch Gag. You know, uh, there's always something to watch, something new, and something to go, what the? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that sequence has run for, God, how long now? 35? <laughs> 35 is oh, yeah, it? Jeez. That's, you know, that's it's funny. crazy. You know it's long, because there was a YouTube video of a super cut of every couch theme. I'm like, oh, this is our couch gag. It's like an hour and ten minutes. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> just the couch around. gag. Yeah, just the couch gag. It's an hour and ten minutes. Hire animators just for the intro. Oh, jeez. I mean, it's god, it's, it's so yeah, nice. it, it is very memorable to the point where if I'm in the garage and my wife gets home shortly after me, I scream like Homer and run for the door when she's coming <laughs> into the garage. So nice. <laughs> yeah, and there's so many I mean now the like, the Easter eggs that could be in that thing. Uh, it's like Oh my God! It's just—I don't. The Simpsons is just—it belongs in its own wing of whatever we're doing. There's like there's the Simpsons and there's everything else. Yeah, it's the Simpsons already did it. The Simpsons already. Did it. Yeah, they're 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 saying that about themselves at this point. We already did this <laughs> twice. <laughs> All right, wow. Gary, what do you have? My number two has already been touched upon. That is a uh, Batman the animated series. I am not by nature a huge batman fan we're gonna cut again that, that is one of those things where when that queued up i did not want to miss the intro much less the show that came with it i've tripped over furniture trying to make it into the room in time to catch this introduction um again this was from memory i don't know any of the background etc cetera, etc cetera. it was just it was badass that that's well, it, it, it did for, for superhero cartoons what nothing else had done before. Exactly, X Men maybe before that, but not not to the level that Batman the Animated Series did. And that is my number one, Batman the Animated Series. Um, it built on the foundation of the Max Fleischer cartoons, which had come fifty years before that. And using a very, I don't want to call it a limited color palette, but a very dark color palette. And, you know, relegating Batman to the shadows. And keep in mind, we had come off of Batman movies. This comes on the heel of Batman Returns, which at the time I really liked. It's one of those movies I was so excited to see. And, you know, I'm only, what, 14 at the time? So I'm probably not all that interested in, in you know, debating it and you know, criticizing Batman Returns. It was a live-action Batman. Uh, I was excited to see it, and it wouldn't be until, like, weeks after seeing it and going, gosh, you know, that was kind of a weird movie. And then when this came out, 
I was kind of like, oh, this is Batman. And I still remember, like, not really being seeing some of the previews for it where they hadn't shown you in the music. And in fact, I found one on YouTube where like, some of the trailers they were showing, there were just like 10 second spots on Fox Kids that they were using like just weird production music that almost sounded super friends like. And they were showing Batman, but they were showing like him like jumping from the sky. And I'm like, eh, this thing looks like it's going to suck. And then I gave it a shot in that intro. Within seconds, you're like, oh, wait a minute. And then just like with the the, the building exploding and it pans up and then you know he kind of comes out of the shadows and all you see is his eyes and narrowing <laughs> yeah and then he ducks out of the way and he takes him down and then the lightning in the back of the sky and then the, the music is just like it's built off the Danny Elfman theme which they appropriated just masterfully to the point where that is the Batman theme now well I, just, I, I just even love it I love the way it starts off, too, with the Warner Brothers logo transmutating into the blimp from the Gotham City Police Department. Right. Yeah, and you see that red sky. The red sky. That that absolutely memorable Gotham red sky. And (laughs) I just remember transitioning from that to the first... The first one... I don't remember this specifically. The first one that was shown on weekdays was the Cat and the Claw, which was the two-parter, which was okay. But they had actually played it it actually came after the simpsons for like the first eight weeks do you remember this like they wanted it in prime time and it was man bat wasn't it yeah yeah and and leather wings was the first one they were there yeah that was prime time sunday night and i even remember my father who's really not into this he's like you're gonna watch a batman cartoon it's wait it's on now on sunday night and he was like like when they they showed him flying through the sky and batman's face smashes up against the window you're like holy how and then of course now we know that it was a harbinger of things to come it set the tone which as much as i have vociferously and voluminously uh praised my love for the 1966 batman this is the best batman it is as good as it's going to get everything else comes below it in terms of if there is if someone were to ask me What's Batman? I'm giving him the animated series. I cannot wait for CJ to get another year or two older before we can sit down and watch it. It's gonna. I'm so excited for it. I've been waiting for it. It and that right away that credit opening sequence tells you everything you need to know about that series. See, and and funny you should mention that that, that was one of the contenders. I thought that may have been your number one. Na 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 na. See, and it okay, but no, I would definitely go with uh, animated series. What was the other one? Oddly enough, uh, the, the introduction for a Superman movie, Christopher Reeve. I didn't, you know, it's funny. <laughs> That's a strange credit sequence. I love it because of what it is, but it's like it's really long and it's just names doing like. I mean, the song the song is all you need, but it was like, I mean, when you talk about... Well, fair enough. Uh, yeah, there's some detraction from it. Batman, and I don't know if Mark, you'll agree on this. Batman, there was some... There was still some repair that needed to be done. Yes, absolutely. When oh, that yeah. show hit, and that show fixed everything. Yeah, I mean, you had to be older than me when uh, Batman Returns came out. Uh, I was 15. 
I was probably so yeah. So yeah, I was, uh, and I remember I didn't like it. I remember seeing the theater and going, "Huh? That that no, just no." So I didn't really care for it. And then yeah, this uh, that rekindled my love of Batman, the animated series. It's just amazing. Well, little did we know that what would come after it, we'd be like, "Geez, that's like a freaking masterpiece." <laughs> anyway, Mark, your number one. Yeah, my number one, uh, probably to come out of left field for you guys, but uh, it is the theme from the Stars television series, Black Sails. You've really? told me about this many times. And uh, that the opening theme by the very well-known Bear McCreary, who has done mm-hmm. everything from the new God of War games to Battlestar Galactica. Um, it is just an epic intro with... Uh, panning across skeleton pirates fighting across little uh you know um tableaus and uh the fun thing about the music is mccreary does the entire score for the series with period accurate instruments across four seasons oh, my oh that's right and uh just i you cannot listen to the opening theme of black sails and not feel rousing pirate adventure uh, if you're not familiar it's a prequel to treasure island and uh, I, I highly recommend it. The first three or four episodes, it tries to be very too much Game of Thrones with a lot of blood and sex and nudity. And then after that, it kind of does its own thing instead of trying to mimic Game of Thrones, and then it really starts to shine. But, you know, if uh, that's true, like, I don't have a reason to doubt you that it, they did everything with period accurate instruments. That should be everyone's number one based on principle alone. Right. <laughs> But yeah, mm. check out the intro sequence. Look it up on YouTube. It is incredible. It uh, that music gets stuck in my head all the time. I will check that out. I mean, that's yeah. I I consider it blasphemy to skip that intro. Rounding third and heading for home. My number one has been touched on. Game of Thrones from 2011 2019. I watched this introduction probably closer than I watched the show. Um, not only the, I don't want to say steampunk, but just the, uh, the gears and mechanics of the entire world unfolding before you clockwork but mechanism. After every episode, you could see the new areas that they had expanded to. So again, it was one of those intros that changed every so often as the world grew within the story. I mean, the music was really good, but like I said, I watched the mechanics of just buildings, you know, towns trees whatever just building up right before your eyes as you got there like i said i think i I paid closer attention to that intro than i did to the show itself yeah i'd say not steampunk but more like it looked more like a da vinci type invention like clockwork gears and stuff like that yes i did not want to go steampunk exactly but i I would say da vinci-esque Yes. And yeah, I agree with you, Gary. That's what I loved about it, too, was the like, you know, you could tell where you were going to be visiting by watching the intro sequence and seeing where it was going to pop up on the map and where it took you to. Right. And then I, how excited you'd get when you'd see a new property. Like I read the books before uh, after season one, I read all of the books before season two came out and uh, started getting into it. So when a location I knew from the books and story points that happened there showed up in the intro i got super excited yeah good good stuff yeah it happens to be the most recent out of all of these but 
it was it was you know, the, the intro was good good TV. Well, you know, I mean, was... look at it. in the past ten years, how many shows have tried to mimic that look? I mean, Black Sails, which is my number one, kind of goes off of that motif, where it's mm. you know rousing music and you know panning across stuff as it goes through it. <laughs> so it's you know it kind of redefined television intros. How long did Black Sails run, Mark? Uh, four seasons. Mm. And did not they, because I mean, it, it had a definitive point where it was supposed to end. So okay, so yeah, like, no, it wasn't. It got canceled. It was this was the yeah, story. Yeah, it's like because you know with the the quality the quality the TV shows are have now and like they you know a lot of times they're planned so far in advance that you get invested. I'm always afraid to get invested in a show to know that there might not be a payoff. So I'm I'm glad to hear that. No, Black Sales carries through to the end. Good, good. Well, this was fun. It's interesting. It was a lot more. Uh, I, I was really kind of. Uh, I, I went about this not sure how I was going to do it, and I was really glad to hear what you guys thought. And I think we all sort of hold these things a little bit dear to us. I mean, especially when you're talking about the Muppet Show. And yeah, I dropped the ball on that one. Uh, well, same, I, I, same. I miss hard. Quantum Leap. I miss Quantum Leap, and I have. Shame. I have Buck Rogers, but I don't have Quantum Leap. So there, there you go. Um, this is really, really cool. I don't know if we'll do it again. Why would we? We wouldn't. Um, but uh, if you want to hear more about this, uh, go back and re-listen to what we just did, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> I really have no good segue. And let's be honest, the the book Gary is about to retro-review is absent of any sort of segue at all. There appears to be no sequence involved in this thing. And uh, it has confounded many a reader in the days uh, since its release way back in the 1980s. It is often seen as a seminal work in graphic novels, often considered among, by many, the greatest graphic novel ever written. Um, and also people are completely confused by it, which is also a very valid take on it. So Gary is going to run us through or uh, the epic... Watchmen. Yes. A little did I know when I uh, pilfered this from Phil's list that uh, you've all read this already. <laughs> so I was the only newbie going in completely un, you know, unknowing about anything in this series. Uh, last month when we went over our uh, top 10 non-traditional most powerful characters, my number one was Dr. Jonathan Osterman, uh, better known as Dr. Manhattan. And I admitted right out there, I, like, I don't really know much about him which is what inspired me to find out. All right, The Watchmen, not The Watchmen, just Watchmen, is a 12-issue comic book limited series created by Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, and John Higgins, published by DC Comics in 1986 to 1987. Now, before I start my poor attempt at a retro review and confuse you all, as Darren would say, first, some context. There are over 2 million copies of this book in print. This book has won both Eisner and Hugo Awards. It is one of Time Magazine's 100 Best English Language Novels since 1923. Damon Lindolf, the co-creator of Lost, calls this, quote, the greatest piece of popular fiction ever produced, unquote. Huh. <laughs> Let me preface this all by saying, while I'm sure there are exceptions... I generally dislike reading, like real reading. I historically have blamed that on the speed reading course I took when I was in third grade, 
since then, everything I read reads like a textbook to me, unless I'm particularly interested in the subject matter going in, going into the book, uh, moving on. I usually consider myself pretty next level when it comes to figuring out riddles, picking up on nuances, reading between the lines, finding that one detail that seems out of place. I've also been known to spend months to set up a single sight gag. But even I was blindsided by the reveal in this one. The long game that was played, the intricate way everything was weaved together. Wow. And the real kicker is that there's a device within the book that kind of tells you that whatever it is you're thinking, you have it wrong. Now, before you get into this, you have to ask yourself, how well can you multitask? Does a drum kit or an automatic transmission give you fits? Can you successfully run up a hill while aiming your weapon in Halo? This book is a juggler who is rotating a bowling ball, an apple, a chainsaw, and an egg all at the same time. All different sizes, all different weights, all different levels of fragility and or danger. Despite their differences, they all must work in unison or else the whole thing falls apart. This book is like an ogre, which thanks to Shrek we know is like an onion or a parfait. It has layers. Layer number one. New York City corner newspaper vendor. A teenage boy reading issues of a comic book. News headlines and the temperature of the public regarding the world events. The threat of war. The events of the heroes. The progress of the Pyramid Corporation and their dimensional research. Layer number two. The narration of the comic book that the teen is reading. A story of a man attacked by pirates, left for dead, who made his way back home. The narration of this story is sometimes shown with the illustrations of the comic, and sometimes shown with the panels of the story itself. Layer 3, the present story. The comedian, one of the heroes, is murdered, and it appears that all of the former crime busters are being targeted. Layer 4, the backstory. How the characters met relationships with the original heroes, the Minutemen, uh, think Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy, you know, just for for reference. Uh, These were the OGs that played by their own rules. Now, perhaps a rousing game of Canasta. But first, the players. (laughs) The comedian. Uh, He is a sanctioned adventurer, which is what the heroes refer to themselves as. Sort of a Nick Fury peacemaker vigilante. He believes humans are savage by nature and chooses to become a mockery of society, fighting and killing without reservation. Osmandius, known as the smartest man in the world. The former child prodigy was inspired by Alexander the Great and the Pharaohs. He publicly retired when the Keen Act was passed, merchandised himself, and used his intellect to amass a business fortune. Silk Spectre. Uh, the daughter of the original Silk Spectre, who was reluctantly trained from an early age to carry on in her mother's footsteps. She is a sanctioned, she is sanctioned by the government because she is in a relationship with another hero, Dr. Manhattan, and keeps him grounded. Honestly, I have no idea what her gimmick is or what she can do. Owlman 2. Uh, independently wealthy. Owlman was a fan of the original Owlman and is known for his owl-themed gadgets. He retired privately when the Keen Act was passed, 
His identity was never made public. Rorschach. Rorschach? Rorschach. Rorschach. A noir, de- a noir detective who is in violation of the Keen Act. He is a non-sanctioned vigilante. He wears a mask that... A- the appearance oddly alternates between images of my parents fighting and a high school ex-girlfriend. Uh, he is often found with his buddy, Vinnie Barbarino, and the rest of the Sweat Hogs, tormenting <laughs> their high school teacher, Mr. Cotter. <laughs> oh, wait, that's Horshack. Never mind. Sorry, scratch that last part. Okay. So, yeah, he has the, the mask oh. that changes between you know, my parents fighting and high school ex-girlfriend. Okay. Dr. Manhattan, uh, sanctioned by the government and is almost single-handedly the U.S. government's greatest weapon. He keeps the rest of the world in their place. Dr. John Osterman was disintegrated in a workplace accident and managed to reconstruct a physical form for himself. He is the only hero in the story with actual superpowers. One of the most difficult characters to follow in the story, as he appears to exist at different points in history all at the same time. While he knows the future, he makes no attempt to change it or to use that knowledge. Uh, For example, in five minutes, you will tell me about your relationship with Dan. Then, when it's mentioned five minutes later, he acts as if he's just learning about it. Now, I can conceivably sum up the entire book in a few sentences, but that would so undersell it. And unfortunately, I can't really review this without spoilers because that's what ultimately makes this book so great. It's also what earned the villain of the story several top 10 and top 20 placements on several lists of the all-time greatest villains. Uh, Before I begin, I want to bounce this around in your brains as a backdrop. For those of you that are Star Trek fans, what was the catalyst for humanity correcting themselves? I, I believe it was spelled out in First Contact after they met the Vulcans, but it could have been somewhere else as well. Okay. Um, and, and basically, the answer to that question was they realized there was something bigger out there. You know, that's when humanity start, stopped fighting amongst themselves. You know, they stopped trying to amass wealth. Um, you know, there, there was something bigger and bigger and better out there that they needed to come together for. So here's the gist of the story, and this is where I actually stopped writing. Uh, It begins with the comedian being beaten and thrown out his window to his death. The next seven issues focuses on each of the heroes, gives their little backstory, what they're going through, and an apparent uh, hardship or attack that each of them experiences. Um, Dr. Manhattan is interviewed and accused of causing everyone around him cancer. Uh, this causes him to leave the earth and go to Mars. Um, his girlfriend, Silk Spectre, uh, who is basically living in a government compound because of him is basically made homeless and cut off from all of her finances because Manhattan's no longer around and she's no longer needed. Warshak is framed, arrested, sent into a mental institution. Osmandius is, there's an attempt, an assassination attempt on his life after a performance 
when a lone gunman tried to uh, kill him. Uh, unfortunately, he popped a cyanide tablet and was not able to be interviewed to find out who caused this. And so, uh, again, this is one of those things where each... There's a lot of nothing going on, but at the very end, you find out how important it all was. It, it gives background, it gives motive, it gives a sense of desperation, and then by the end, let's see, I, I don't want to tell how it ends, but you almost have to. It's 35 years old. Yeah, it's, it's been a while, dude. I think anybody who doesn't want a spoiler can stop listening. <laughs> okay, you know what? And e even if you know how it ends, I, I think, you know... It's hard to explain anyway. The, the journey is, you know, more than the destination, I guess. Mm -hmm. Long story short, it, it turns out that Osmandius, the smartest man in the world, has basically orchestrated what I consider the greatest long game of all time. Um... And created a, through this pyramid corporation that he is fronting, using his stock wealth that he's accrued, creates this being, this alien, um, that appears, teleports into the middle of New York, kills millions of people, but in the process... <clears throat> stops a potential third world war effectively the end of the world um and the way he phrased it to owlman and warshak at the very end and dr manhattan and silk specter were there he's like the only thing you failed at or the only thing you succeeded at was failing to prevent the end of the world no did i say that right they failed at stopping the world being saved is basically what it came down to. And they found themselves in a situation that if they turned him in and everyone discovered that this whole thing was basically a giant ruse, they would be right back to where they started with countries fighting against each other, the potential for nuclear war. And logically, they basically had to let the bad guy win in this case. Um, Warshak decided he was, you know, no matter what, you know, justice had to be served, and Manhattan uh, disintegrated him because he couldn't let him go back and tell. And then he went off to another galaxy somewhere. It, it's, uh, like I said, there was many layers. He said you had the, the, the New York City Corner newspaper vendor where you get to see the headlines you know, all, all of these little topics that you don't really think are related. You know, you see things about the heroes, about, you know, Russia advancing on the Ukraine or somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, you hear about the Pyramid Corporation, which you think is just kind of a throwaway. But later on, you find out that all this stuff is, is interconnected. I mentioned about the comic book that the teen was reading. This guy who had been left for dead on this island did some horrific things to make his way back home. And he had convinced himself basically of what he was going to find when he got there. You know, that these pirates that left him for dead had already made it back to his home. 
you know, they've killed everyone in his village. His wife and children were all dead. You know, he, he knew in his mind what, what had happened before he even got there only to get home and anything he would see, he would twist to fit that narrative. So again, that's kind of the parallel that as you're reading this book and everything is steering you in a certain direction where you think, you know, where this is going and everything they show you, you can fit neatly in that box only at the end to find out that, man, I I was wrong from the get go. That was, um, I have not watched the movie. I don't know. I th- I think they changed the ending a little bit as they far did. as the, the large monster goes. It it works though. The, the change they made works just as well as the alien. They made it seem like Doctor Manhattan caused it all, or yeah. something with like large lasers or something. Framing Doctor Manhattan actually makes a lot of sense too in the story context. So it, I mean, yes. it works. Yeah. So I mean, this was uh four hundred and four hundred and what? Then there's a lot of filler in between the chapters and two four hundred and fourteen pages of comic book 12 issues and man there was a lot of head scratching in this and like i said i i hate reading in general but because it was in comic form and a lot of the images were there i didn't have to imagine a lot of this stuff because man if i had to construct this in my head i don't i don't know what would have happened i i can see why this won the awards that it did um but man, this this was not uh, this was. I don't want to say it wasn't an easy read, but th- th- this don't take this lightly. I guess is the best. I mean, you guys have both read this. What 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 are your memories of this? Mark, you want to go ahead? Um, I t- I mostly remember the uh, the complexities like you were talking about with that long game and you know all the different plot threads that tie together in ways you never imagined when you opened the book and started reading. And it's yeah, it's uh, but like I, he I knew that say Manhattan it's... was going to be the problem, and he had to get him out of the way. Hence, he started a company, hired a bunch of people that used to hang around Manhattan, and legitimately gave them cancer yeah. so that he could then get them all together and say, "Here's your common thread." It's his fault, and then he left. I I want to say that the various plot twists and turns, I would call them Hitchcockian. Yeah. It's it's that kind of, you know, mental screw with you. Just all sorts of gut punches and twists and turns you didn't think were coming. And yeah, it's, it, you'll also notice, Gary, if you watch the movie, you'll find that Zack Snyder didn't have to do a whole lot of work because that book is pretty much a storyboard for the film. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's good. That That's good. Um, yeah, there were yeah. several scenes in here that. Wow. Um, so, okay, so like with Owlman, he, he would get together with the original Owlman every so often, have breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, so his, his chapter or his issue, um, basically some street punks go and they find the original Owlman because they know where he is because he retired publicly and they beat him to death. You know, so it's, well, something didn't happen to him, you know, like Owlman 2 specifically, you know, these were the consequences he faced. So every member of this group, you know, the Crime Stoppers, which is a horrible name for a group, but um, it seemed like they were all under attack. 
and they even asked Ozymandias about, like, you know, this guy comes at you with the gun. What are you going to do? If, you know, he's like, I have to catch the bullet. You know, he he was in, for reference, um, for me personally, Santa Claus has left my favorite candy in my stocking while I was on a low-carb diet. Our elf on the shelf left a loaded mousetrap in my stocking a couple years ago. These are things that have happened to me in order to change change the perception or, hey, look over there, I guess. So the fact that he hired someone to attempt to assassinate himself and took the risk that he could have actually been shot, you know, that that's the... You know, that's why you didn't consider him a suspect, because he was just at risk, just like everyone else. So, yeah, I mean, there there is some long game in this that is just super impressive. Gary, you did about as good a job as summarizing the Watchmen and, you know, kind of tying it into a neat bow as I've ever heard. Yeah, that's, and um, that's a tough that's a tough feat. Right yeah, there. it's. I've never bothered trying to explain the Watchmen to anybody. I'm just like, you listen. You have to read just, it. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. You, if you need a, you need analysis, you've come to the wrong place. But there's so much stuff in there that you don't think means anything until so, afterwards, and you're like, oh, that was important. I get the sense that you really enjoyed it on the other side of it. I I think I enjoyed it more when I got to like the last twelve pages when everything clicked. Yeah, one of the moments because it was perplexing the crap out of me. Because I like to solve that stuff before it's done. You know, I like to figure out who did it before the movie's over. You know, and I I was so off. On yeah, this. I I agree on that res- on that regard, but I also have to say that I respect any property that can keep me confounded until the last minutes. Oh yeah, yeah. So, especially you know. for as as inform- as well read and as as well informed viewers as we've become. Uh, one of the things that I'll always remember about that was reading it, and you know, knowing that this was different than anything I'd read before. And having a lot of the problems that, you know, you were not problems, but like the, uh, you know, being confounded by a lot of the things, but knowing that, okay, this is something different. This is something special. And I kind of owe it to myself to get through this, given that it is a comic book. It's by one of the greatest, it's by, you know, a very well-known writer considered one of the best of all time and one of the better artists of that day. And I felt compelled to do it and I really did enjoy it. And then I still remember getting towards the end and feeling like, oh man, they're going to completely botch the ending because you have Ozymandias telling Owlman and Rorschach just like soliloquizing about his plan, like every James Bond villain you've ever yes. seen. And then he it's stops. Like, oh, I already did it. Then he stops. I did it 30 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, he says, why, why would I tell you this? I've already, I did it 35 minutes ago. And then you're like, Oh, this is going somewhere completely different, uh, and, and that, that was just such. That's one of my most memorable scene uh, moments in reading a comic book. Like, damn, this is this is pretty good. It's uh, kind of like with with Batman when you find out that he has a failsafe for every member of the Justice League. Yeah, you know, it was kind of that that same thing where he knows everyone that he's going to have to deal with, and here's how you deal with them. And like I said, the long game was a super impressive. Because yeah. this apparently started back like decades earlier. And that's why the reflections about the interactions of how the heroes met, you know, it, the, this idea started when, you know, he spoke to this guy about this, you know. So it, the whole thing was about changing the world's focus, giving them a common enemy so that everyone would bond together. 
instead of fight amongst themselves. The yeah. bad guy wins, but it was actually a good thing in this case. Yeah. Awesome job, Gary. Except for um, the millions of people that died in New York, but well, yeah, well, saved yeah, the world, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's... I mean, it, the the Watchmen, I, I know people that love it. Uh, I know people that hate it. And I, as you said, there's some you know luminaries out there that consider it among the greatest works of literary fiction they've ever read. It's definitely your 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 comic book journey, maybe even your pop culture journey is not complete until you've read this. I mean, it's just one of those things you owe it to yourself. You gotta you gotta read it. I mean, it's just one of it's 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 almost like a required text. Whether or not you engage in it, whether or not you enjoy it, that's up to you. But it's required text. I have earned my Watchmen badge. You did indeed. You did. <laughs> You know what? What would be so? Isn't it? What do you think's next after that? So you do Watchmen. What should you read next? Like what, what for? Like all the like. So what? War are some, and Peace. I don't know. Something easier. <laughs> something easier like War and Peace. That is where we end this. That is perfect. You're right. All right, guys. This was a right. Great job, Gary. That was excellent. Mr. Kata. Mr. Kata. Sorry. I'll throw that in there. That was excellent, Gary. Well done. And then you just ruined it by, you know, you know, bringing in your Mr. Carter or your uh, Rorschach impression. Um, Rorschach. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait what, what about his Ross Sack impression? Ross Sack impression. I'm sorry, Mr. Carter. Oh, all right. Uh, great job, Gary. That's one of the better ones we've ever done, I think. And you, you, you tackle the Titan on that one. That's for sure. Hell yeah. All right, coming up is next month. We got nothing. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. Uh, Phil's doing a retroactive review of. Should we just tell him what he's going to do? Come up with something quickly and tell him you're you're married to reading My Little Pony number one, which um, I think he'd enjoy actually. Well, <laughs> you know, of all the comics I've purchased in the last like since this podcast started, I bought my daughter My Little Pony number one. Things like an eight hundred dollar book. And it's not for me because that sucker was torn to shreds. Um, Ooh. all right. Any questions, comments, concerns, freakouts? Uh, all right. Uh, so next month, join us for whatever that's going to be. Uh, and as Phil would say, uh, things and stuff. Oh, right. Enjoy. I've had a big one. Oh. Enjoy, your, enjoy your burger. Enjoy your burger.